the views expressed on TMI with Aldous Tyler are not necessarily those of WSUMFM, the University of Wisconsin in Madison, or the Board of Regents. Oh no, my friends, the views for the next hour are all mine. TMI with Aldous Tyler for Friday, March 12th, 2021. So many of us had a good bit of a celebration, shall we say, when time after time from the early Tuesday in November all the way until Inauguration Day, it was clear that Trump was defeated a uh, time and again by Joe Biden in the White House. It was cause for jubilation, we were very happy that after four years of Donald Trump leading the nation, that we would no longer have to worry about such things. And, um, you know, we had good reason to be excited. Um, but, you know, we need to be a little bit careful with this because now nah, I'm, I'm not going to go after go. I'm not going to go after Biden right now. I, I've done that before. Um, and you know my views, if you've listened, that uh, Biden isn't sufficiently different from Trump to warrant absolute um, celebration that there's a, a new guy in town. But the fact is this, he is actively attempting to reverse and change a lot of the most horrible things that uh, former President Trump put into place. And that's great. But it's not like Trump wants to go out without a fight. Um, I mean, he's out. We know that. But the thing is, is that, uh, well, one of the things that was reported by The Hill this week was that dozens of Trump appointees have been burrowing into the Biden government. So to be clear, we're talking roughly two dozen Trump administration appointees remain in civil service jobs or in government advisory boards. All you know, and we're all now roughly two months into the Biden administration. That's according to a new report from a government watchdog group obtained by the Hill. Uh, the watchdog group's called Accountable.us. It's a left-leaning watchdog. Good guys. They found that at least twenty-four Trump appointees have managed to. Um, burrow into civil civil service jobs where they're likely to be overlooked, um, and except for the alarm that's being sounded right now by Accountable U.S. The appointments mean that Trump-era officials will remain in those posts for the foreseeable future. Now, the report cited four individuals who are believed to have burrowed into national security roles, nine 
who have taken up roles in environmental regulation, and three officials at the Department of Justice. The allegations mirror those made frequently during the Trump administration about a so-called deep state of career officials who were obstructing the former president's agenda. But in this case, it was taking that paranoid assertion um, and turning it on its head. Trump said, well, then let's set up my own deep state, right? Among those listed in the report as potentially burrowing into the Biden administration are acting U.S. Attorney Parekh Shah, Brandon Middleton in the Department of Energy, and Robert G. Cameron at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Accountable U.S. President Kyle Herring said in a statement, because these kinds of positions usually fly under the radar, having them filled with antagonists of the Biden administration could sabotage progress on the many crises we're grappling with. Now, this issue's already come to a head in some instances. Michael Ellis, a GOP operative, an ally of former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, was placed on administrative leave after Biden took office, pending an investigation into his appointment as the top lawyer at the National Security Agency in the waning days of the Trump administration. Biden last week fired Sharon Gustafson, who was appointed by former President Trump as the general counsel of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission after she refused to resign. President Biden also signed an executive order at the outset of his presidency restoring worker protections and eliminating Schedule F, a Trump-era policy that provided a pathway for certain appointees to burrow their way into long-term civil service jobs. The Accountable.us report also cited more than 100 appointments Trump made in his final weeks in office to put loyalists and allies on government advisory boards. Those roles are not official government positions, but reflect the extent to which Trump has stocked Washington, D.C. commissions with former aides and donors. Now, Trump appointed former White House Counselor Kellyanne Conway to serve on the U.S. Air Force Academy Board of Visitors. He tapped former Transportation Secretary and wife of uh, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, Elaine Chao, to serve on the Kentucky, sorry, the Kennedy Senator of uh, Board of Trustees. So again, Elaine Chao, wife of Mitch McConnell, serves now on the Kennedy Center Board of Trustees. Russ Vout. Um, Trump's former director of the Office of Management and Budget, who was accused of holding up the Biden transition, was appointed to the U.S. Naval Academy Board of Visitors. Now, uh, the Biden administration has taken some steps to intervene in the appointments. Uh, Biden's defense secretary, Lord Lloyd Austin, I should say, in early February, ousted hundreds of members from the Pentagon's advisory committees, removing last-minute appointees by the Trump administration that included former Trump campaign advisors Corey Lewandowski and David Bossie. But you see, this is just one part of what seems to be a, a strategy by Trump to remain um, relevant, and more than that, to have solid footholds to regain power. For instance, it was reported this week that former President Donald Trump is competing with the GOP's fundraising operation and lashing out at the RNC, uh, further complicating his status as a Republican Party leader, of course. Trump said in a fundraising email Monday night, 
No more money for rhinos, R-I-N-O, which, of course, if you are familiar, stands for Republicans in name only. A term used to bash moderate GOP politicians accused of governing like Democrats. (laughs) Now, Trump, without specifying his targets by name, asserted that they do nothing but hurt the Republican Party and our great voting base. They will never lead us to greatness. In an apparent attempt to elaborate, Trump issued a follow-up statement Tuesday afternoon saying, I fully support the Republican Party and important GOP committees, but I do not support rhinos and fools. Trump added that it is not their right to use my likeness or image to raise funds. A reference to his growing feud with the Republican Party over its use of Trump's name and likeness in its fundraising efforts. Both statements were sent by Trump's political action committee, Save America PAC, and both statements urged his supporters to donate to Save America PAC. So much money is being raised and completely wasted by people that do not have the GOP's best interests in mind, Trump's latest statement claimed. So yeah, wait a minute. Let me just draw this back for you. Former President Trump is calling for people to donate to his personal political action committee, right? Not the Republican National Committee. He's saying, do not donate to the RNC. Instead, donate to Save America PAC. Now, those requests echoed Trump's recent speech in Orlando, his first post-presidency public remarks, where he told a crowd of supporters that his own PAC was the only way to elect America first Republican conservatives. Now, redirecting the flow of Republican money into his own war chest, if successful, well, it could really help Trump tighten his grip on the party as he aims to undermine his perceived enemies within it. Now, experts point out that promoting his own PAC can also carry other perks for Trump. After all, PACs such as Save America PAC can raise donations for political expenditures, such as supporting candidates, and Trump could use his to lay the groundwork for a presidential campaign in 2024. But, um, as Brendan Fisher, Federal Reform Program Director at the Campaign Legal Center points out, they also can be used for just about anything else. Fisher told CNBC in an interview, given the amount of money raised, it's entirely possible Trump could use Save America PAC, both to maintain control and influence over the Republican Party, and also to benefit himself and his family members personally. Oh, he'd never do that though, right? Trump? (laughs) Anyway, The Associated Press reported earlier in March that Save America PAC has more than $80 million cash on hand. Now, Trump, who never formally conceded defeat to President Joe Biden, has hardly stepped back from politics since his one term in office expired on January 20th. Now that he's ensconced at his home in Palm Beach, Florida, Trump has presented himself as the de facto leader and future of the Republican Party while regularly attacking prominent Republicans who are still in office. Even as Trump teases a possible 2024 presidential run on the Republican ticket, he's demanding that the Republican National Committee stop using his name and image in its fundraising messages. Trump's lawyers sent cease and desist letters uh, this last Friday to the RNC, 
um, you know, that's, by the way, the National Republican Congressional Committee as well, and the National Republican Senate Committee. So the Republican National Committee, the RNC, the NRCC, that's Congress for Republicans, and NRSC, that's the Senate for uh, Republicans, got cease and desist lawyers from uh, letters, I should say, from Trump's lawyers on using his name and his likeness in any fundraising. Now, Monday this week, RNC Chief Counsel J. Justin Reamer rebuffed that demand, telling Save America's lawyer Alex Cannon that Trump and RNC Chairwoman Ronna McDaniel had hashed out the dispute, supposedly. Although the thing is, is that the next day, Trump came back and said that they shouldn't do it again. After all, it's one of those things where, well, so Reamer wrote in a letter, we understand that President Trump reaffirmed to McDaniel over the weekend that he approves of the RNC's current use of his name in fundraising and other materials, including for our upcoming donor retreat at Palm Beach, at which we look forward to him participating. Um, that letter, which uh, was shared by the RNC, noted that the committee has not sent any fundraising requests in President Trump's name or used his image since before he left office, nor would it do uh, so without his prior approval. He added, the RNC, of course, has every right to refer to public figures as it engages in core First Amendment protected political speech, and it will continue to do so in pursuit of these common goals. So, all of a sudden, Monday night, in Trump's email, decrying the rhinos, the Republicans in name only, and urging donations to the Save America PAC and not the Republican National Committee, it seems to contradict Reamer's claim that Trump and McDaniel had reached an agreement. You know, a spokesman for Trump did not respond um, for a request for comment on the back and forth with the RNC. A contact from the Save America PAC also did not respond for with a request for comment. But here's the deal. Um, so the RNC hadn't used Trump's name or likeness since Trump left office. Right. But all of a sudden, Trump decides he's going to raise a stink about the idea that they uh, should not, that they don't have the right to, right? And that's allowing him then to signal to his supporters in the public that the RNC is somehow bad and corrupt and that they need to support him directly, not the RNC. Uh-huh. Now, Republicans lost the White House and Senate majority in the wake of Trump's presidency. We know that. But the Republican Party and many of its leaders have kept closely allied with Trump, whose popularity endures among huge trunk chunks of the GOP electorate. Let's not forget that aside from Joe Biden's vote total, President Trump had the highest vote total of any other presidential candidate in history. It's just that Biden had roughly 8 million more. So he won. But... Please don't forget that there is a huge, huge amount of people out there, huge, that actually support Donald Trump. Uh, some Republicans have openly condemned Trump for his conduct before and after the January 6th invasion of the U.S. Capitol, which resulted, as we know, in five deaths and forced a joint session of Congress into hiding. Representative Liz Cheney of Wyoming, the number three Republican in the House in late February, said, I don't believe that Trump should be playing a role in the future of the party or the country. But more Republicans have avoided criticizing Trump even after the invasion, which appeared to have little impact on his overall approval among his base. 
Others who had initially distanced themselves from Trump after the deadly riot, such as Senator Lizzie Graham and Representative Kevin McCarthy have later reaffirmed their support for Trump because it's politically dangerous not to right now. Even Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, who had just blasted Trump for peddling false election theft conspiracies, said more recently that he would absolutely support Trump if he became the GOP nominee in 2024. Meanwhile, numerous other Republicans rumored to have presidential ambitions appear to be taking steps toward launching their own campaigns, while taking care not to cross Trump. Next month, for instance, former Vice President Mike Pence will reportedly travel to South Carolina, a crucial state on the presidential primary map, to deliver his first public speech since leaving office. So there's all that. You have... All of these Trump appointees and such that are still burrowed in position. You have Trump himself undermining the fundraising of the Republican National Committee and pointing it toward himself and alarming and alerting everybody that if somebody's not on Trump's good list, they are an enemy of the Republican Party. And then there's one last thing, one last piece to this puzzle that makes things just a little bit concerning. Senate Republicans are facing a brain drain as some of the caucus's biggest dealmakers prepare to head for the exits. Senator Roy Blunt, a Republican uh, senator of Missouri, announced this week that he will not run for re-election. And that's the latest blow for the GOP's governing wing of the Senate, a coalition of policy wonks and bipartisan-minded institutionalists who have been at the center of the biggest legislative accomplishments in the past decade. Now, obviously, I'm all for rotating people out. Some of those senators have been there for way, way too long. And in my opinion, just about any GOP senator has been there too long. But that's not the point. I mean, the membership of Congress is always in flux. A third of the Senate is up every two years. And all of the House is up every two years. But the turnover amongst some of the most successful GOP negotiators is particularly strong this time. Um, Senator John Cornyn, who is an advisor to Mitch McConnell, said, there's a lot of experience, a lot of knowledge leaving. It's a loss of a lot of institutional memory. Now, this might sound like a whole bunch of stuff you don't have to worry about, but think about this for a minute. Not only blunt, you've got Senators Richard Shelby of Alabama, Rob Portman of Ohio, Pat Toomey of Pennsylvania, and Richard Burr of North Carolina. They're all expected to retire at the end of 2022, not run again. Now, each of those folks hold a top GOP committee spot. Blunt and Shelby in particular are known for their ability to craft deals. Portman and Toomey are well-versed in policy. Burr has earned the respect of Democrats for his work as Intelligence Committee Chairman. Now, when you add that to other GOP senators seen as dealmakers that have also left the Senate in recent years, a pattern starts emerging. After all, you had Lamar Alexander of Tennessee, Pat Roberts of Kansas. Those are two GOP chairmen with big bipartisan accomplishments. They retired at the end of 2020. Johnny Isaacson of Georgia stepped down in 2019 due to health reasons. 2018 saw the departure of Orrin Hatch of Utah and uh, Bob Corker of uh, Tennessee. Um, Again, that was a chairman of the Finance Committee in his case, uh, or in the case of Hatch, I should say, Foreign Relations Committee for Corker. Uh, Jeff Flake of Arizona was a conservative who was willing to buck his party. 
Uh, and of course, former Senator John McCain died in 2018. So here's the thing, though. These are the institutionalists, as they're known. Senator Lisa Murkowski said, I think ju about just the years of legislating that they have brought to these discussions, it's going to be a real loss. A loss for the institution, really. Over the years, Congress has changed, and we've seen different leaders rise, perform, and leave, but it just seems like we're losing so much of that substantive tenure in a very short period. Now, it's far from certain that the current exits are going to be the only ones for Senate Republicans. Uh, Senator Chuck Grassley of Iowa, top Republican on the Judiciary Committee, and the panel's former chairman, is not expected to make a decision about running for another term again until the fall. Um, Murkowski herself, um, who Trump has threatened to campaign against, also hasn't said if she'll run for a re-election. Now, here's why it's concerning. Add this in to the Trump appointees and the fact that Trump is campaigning against the GOP that doesn't work with him, that isn't compliant to him. And then stop and think for a moment, who's replacing these senators? Now, it would be great if we could get Democratic seats in each one of these, but that's not going to happen. Some of these places, Alabama, um, not likely. But the point is, the replacements are going to be new Republican senators. Now, interesting to note, these GOP institutionalists, as they're known, they're, they're more bipartisan in nature, are being replaced with Republicans that are more in the mold of Donald Trump, more compliant to Trump, more interested in advancing Trump's ideas. Uh, GovTrack, a congressional analysis website, ranked Senator um, Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee as the senator most ideologically to the right in 2019. Her Predecessor, Senator Corker of Tennessee, was ranked 47 out of 100 in 2018. So, basically, all of a sudden, you replaced one Republican with a Republican that's essentially a Trump copy. Uh, Senator Tommy Tuberville of Alabama replaced former Senator Doug Jones has a 100% Trump score, according to 538. Former Senator Martha McSally of Arizona voted with Trump 94.9% of the time. Um, John McCain, whose seat she was appointed to, was at 83%. Now, thankfully, she's been replaced uh, by a Democrat, although I'm a fairly conservative Democrat. But anyway, point is, Republicans only need a net gain of one seat to win back the majority in the Senate in 2022. Now, they're defending 20 seats, including two in states won by Biden, Pennsylvania, where Toomey's retiring, and Wisconsin, where Senator Ron Johnson hasn't made a decision but has suggested his preference is to leave after 2022. Please, Ron, just, just go. But these open seats are likely to attract Trump loyalists, which could tilt the Senate GOP much further toward Trump if they are elected. Uh, Representative Mo Brooks of Alaska, the House firebrand who supported efforts to overturn the election results, has indicated he's looking at running for Shelby's seat. Um, Senator, sorry, Rep Representative Jason Smith of Missouri, who votes with Trump 94% of the time, according to 538, also said Tuesday he's considering a run for Blunt's seat. It's possible other senators will step into the shoes of the dealmakers. GOP senators who have been willing to cut deals include Murkowski, Susan Collins, Marco Rubio, and others. So these three particular things are concerning. The fact that there are some truly well-burrowed 
uh, Trump appointees still in governance, ready to go, ready to make a mess of what Biden's doing and ready to go if Trump gets back into power. The fact that Trump is fundraising against the RNC and causing trouble just to try to make sure he can make his money and solidify the support of his base against Republicans who would go against him. And then finally, the fact that so many Republican senators who are known for being at least a little more moderate are out of there and they seem to be systematically um, being replaced by Trump loyalists. So if you thought we had nothing further to worry about from Trump, well, just keep your eye on the ball, people, because there's a lot of groundwork already being laid. You're listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler. We'll be right back. I imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice. Tumbling down the rabbit hole. You're listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler. Yes. On WSUM 91.7 FM in Madison. Hallelujah. My Savior, man. No one personal Jesus Christ. It's your cure for the common media. Airing every Friday at 5 p.m. Central. Podcasting every Monday evening. Hey, Mikey, I think he likes it. Want some more? Oh, yes. Check out TMI, TMI, TMI.com for podcasts and all things TMI. I know Kung Fu. Show me.
we're back, TMI, with Aldous Tyler. Despite recent trends in promoting themselves as being green and climate-friendly, many corporations still find it's more profitable if they can decrease environmental regulations and try to get away with what they can get away with. But how do they do that? Well, Julia Rock at the Daily Poster, um, that's dailyposter.com this week, had a piece called Exposing Corporate Climate Denial. And she wrote, last week, during his confirmation hearing to serve as the chair of the Securities and Exchange Commission, Gary Gensler said his agency would consider requiring public companies to disclose their political expenditures. If that happens, climate activists say it would finally force companies to answer to investors and regulators, not only about the risk that climate change poses to their profit margins, but also about their own roles in funding the politicians and political groups blocking climate action. The implications for the climate movement are major. All too often, businesses have flaunted media-friendly environmental policies. Look how green we are while using dark money channels to quietly fund politicians and groups that actively work to suppress climate action. It doesn't matter to them, apparently, that bankrolling climate change denialism doesn't just hurt the environment, but could also end up undermining their long-term bottom lines. After all, corporations don't think long-term, they think next quarter. With no obligation to ever go public about such shady political moves, there's never been a pressing incentive for corporations to stop subsidizing regressive political players and their disastrous climate stances. Now, if the SEC moves forward with the political contribution disclosure disclosure rule, companies would finally have to come clean about how they've been secretly funding the fight against climate action. Uh, Dan Carroll, the vice president for programs at the Center for Political Accountability, which encourages companies to disclose their political contributions, says, until something happens, we're relying on companies to do the right thing, which isn't the best proposition we've learned with climate change. The political giving is the foundational element of it that enables the lack of regulation and the lack of laws that address the issue. Now, The idea of requiring corporations to disclose their political spending first gained popularity following the Supreme Court's 2010 Citizens United ruling. After the decision allowed unlimited corporate independent expenditures, a public petition calling for mandatory disclosure of political spending by public companies received 1.2 million comments, the most in the Securities and Exchange Commission history. The majority of comments were in favor of of the regulation. However, President Barack Obama's second SEC chair, Mary Jo White, refused to consider requiring such disclosures. GOP lawmakers also started attaching legislation to annual spending bills that prohibited the SEC from spending any funds to advance a rule requiring companies to disclose their dark money spending. Republicans attached the same language to the spending bill Congress passed in December. Meanwhile, investor efforts to require political spending disclosures at individual companies were halted on many occasions by large asset managers like BlackRock and Vanguard, which have regularly used their immense shareholder voting power to shield companies from transparency. So in other words, let's say you're an investor and you're environmentally minded, which you should be because you're a human being on planet Earth, and you're like, hey, 
I want to know if this company I'm invested in actually is donating to causes that are against climate uh, action. Well, if Vanguard or Blackhawk happen to also be um, sitting on a bunch of the stock for the place you're invested in, they could come along and just use all their shares to vote against disclosing such things, and you could never know. Now, with a new SEC chairman, transparency advocates see an opportunity for progress. U.S. Representative Andy Levin, the Democrat from Michigan, said people want to know who companies are bankrolling. H.R. 1, the democracy reform package passed by House Democrats earlier this month, includes a bill from Andy Levin to repeal the Republican measure blocking the SEC from requiring companies to disclose their political spending. Levin said, unfortunately, Republicans have made sure it's not as simple as the SEC coming out with a rule. We need to get rid of an outrageous appropriations rider that has blocked the SEC from doing just that. Now, dark money contributions have allowed companies to engage in political greenwashing on an unprecedented scale. And for those of you unfamiliar, greenwashing is where um, a company or uh, other institution will attempt to make its uh, policies and its actions appear far more environmentally friendly than they are. So, um, like I said, companies have been engaging in political greenwashing a lot while pledging action on climate change and committing to net zero emission policies. Many brands have been secretly funneling millions of dollars to political and trade organizations that are fighting government efforts on climate. In a report published last summer, the Center for Political Accountability outlined one such example. In 2017, U.S. companies that had been prominent public backers of the Paris Climate Agreement were reported to have donated significant sums of money to the Republican Attorney General's Association, which had run a campaign to undermine the Obama administration's clean power plan. Companies including Facebook, Bank of America, Uber, J.P. Morgan Chase, all donated tens of thousands of dollars to the Republican Attorney General's Association in 2014, the political group supporting Republican Attorneys General who sued to stop Obama's landmark climate legislation from being implemented. Now, the Republican Attorney General's Association, or RAGA for short, R-A-G-A, is a 527 political organization, so it's required to disclose its donors, though the organization does receive substantial funding from dark money nonprofits. In 2017, the Center for Public Integrity reported on the corporate contributions to RAGA and asked the companies why they had donated to a group that was undermining their shared uh, climate, their stated climate goals, I should say. Some of the companies said they'd back the group to win political favor with the Republican Party or, you know, build relationships, but that the policy outcome had been unintended. In other words, financing the destruction of a key Obama-era climate initiative was just an accident. Whoopsie. Thanks to the Citizens United decision, there are numerous other instances of climate action opponents amassing political donations away from the prying eyes of the public. The Senate Democrats Select Committee on the Climate Crisis published a report last August, which found that the Supreme Court decision cost us a lost decade on our journey to responsible climate legislation. Uh, 
adding that the Citizens United decision allowed fossil fuel political power to effectively capture Republican elected officials nationwide. Now, beyond the fossil fuel industry, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, Washington's biggest business lobbying group, has spent $150 million on congressional races alone since the Citizens United decision, with most of that money going to politicians who oppose action on climate. A Bloomberg analysis found this fall that politicians who oppose action on climate have received twice as much uh, corporate donations as those who don't. At the same time, while many corporations frame climate risk as something they must protect themselves against, they've proven to be largely unwilling to address their own roles in causing climate change through their business decisions and political contributions. Uh, An example is BlackRock CEO Larry Fink, who wrote in his 2020 annual letter that investors are increasingly reckoning with these questions and recognizing that climate risk is an investment risk. Fisk reiterated in this year's letter that the firm sees climate change as a monumental challenge and opportunity. But over the past couple of years, BlackRock and other large asset managers have voted against most shareholder resolutions that would address climate change. BlackRock has also declined to publish shareholders' proposed climate action resolutions, according to the Center for Political Accountability's annual CPA Zicklin Index for 2020. BlackRock is also reportedly a member of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, although shareholders lament that it hasn't disclosed this membership and the company's PAC is a frequent GOP donor. Moira Burse, the climate and finance director at Amazon Watch, said there's a big difference between risks to investments from climate change and the risk to the climate from certain investments. She added that it's not just BlackRock's lobbying against climate regulation, but its record of lobbying against regulation of the financial industry that should concern climate watchdogs. Now, political pressure from the Biden administration might not be the only factor that forces companies to rethink their political strategies relating to climate action. Climate change will increasingly move from a theoretical abstraction to a pressing business consideration. Every sector will be impacted by rising sea levels, increased frequency and intensity of natural disasters and pandemics, and the transition away from fossil fuels towards renewables. It's going to happen. Many corporations that have been actively funding anti-climate action politicians and trade groups are harming themselves in the long term, since the climate crisis will pose a greater financial risk the longer carbon emissions go unmitigated. Bruce Freed, the Center for Political Accountability's president, said, Companies are moving forward and adopting policies to deal with climate change, but the problem is that in many cases, their political spending has not been aligned with those policies. That hurts a company business-wise because it means that any policies it's seeking would be much harder to get enacted in Congress or at the state level because of the election of office holders who would oppose addressing climate change. That's not a mistake. Come on. So in other words, you can have your company publicly go, oh, yes, we really want to see this happen. We really want to see these changes happen. Congress should be doing something about this. And then you're funding congressional candidates who will do exactly the opposite. Uh Uh-huh. As BlackRock and other companies 
meet the mounting climate crisis with new promises to investors, regulators, and the public about their climate goals, political spending disclosures could, for the first time in over a decade, create a metric for judging the veracity of their climate commitments and a way to hold corporations accountable for their role in delaying much-needed climate action. You're listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler. We'll be right back.
we're back, TMI, with Aldous Tyler. Now, I'm going to throw some numbers at you, and I'm going to hope that you don't mind. Um, don't worry, I'll try to break them down so they're not completely insane-making. Um, but let's start at the top. The billionaires of this world together control $9.5 trillion. That's what they've got amongst them. $9.5 trillion spread across 2,825 billionaires. Now, what that means, let me again break this down a little bit, is that in order to be a billionaire, you have to have at least $1 billion worth to you know, call yours, right? So if you're going to say that the billionaires shouldn't just be outright eliminated, that we should allow billionaires to exist, but only as 1 billion billionaires, that's an awful lot of money that's in the overheads because that would only take $2.825 trillion to each have 1 billion per billionaire. That leaves us with almost six and a half trillion dollars. Now, I'm pointing this out because once you get to be a billionaire, that's not the kind of money you make based on your own hard work. It just isn't. Uh, this whole myth of meritocracy has been put there primarily so that we, who are making the money for the billionaires, don't notice that we're being robbed blind. So I don't, for a moment, have a problem with the proposal of saying that if you're a billionaire, you stop there, that's fine. You have a billion dollars, let's give you a, a medal, a little trophy. Yay, you won capitalism. But the rest of that money needs to go back into society. And you know why? Well, that six and a half trillion I was mentioning, that could eradicate world hunger for over 200 years. One uh, twentieth of it would halt climate change by 2030. Uh, let me make sure to reiterate, just one twentieth of the six and a half trillion dollars that billionaires have above one billion dollars each can halt climate change within 10 years. And that's not taking one penny from any of the billionaires that are only one billion billionaires. This is just keeping the ones that are outrageously wealthy from being above them. Now, that's all well and good, but there is something else which is near and dear to my heart that I think we really should focus on getting some of that six and a half trillion to, and that, of course, is universal health care. Now, people go, oh my gosh, Aldous, that's just way too expensive. <laughs> Do you have any idea how much a trillion dollars is? Even at the most outsized um, estimate, Completely universal health care, completely paid for, 100%. No taxes need to be levied on anybody making less than a billion dollars, right? Only costs about a trillion a year. Now, you might go, well, all this, that just means it's only six and a half trillion. Yeah, yeah, but here's the thing. Once you set up that initial trillion, that sets up a sustainable system that can start be uh, can be self-perpetuating at that point. So it's not going to cost all 6 trillion over 6 years. And in fact, 
I'm sure most of us being fair-minded individuals wouldn't mind once the trillion gets kicked in to start the system and have it paid for for a year just for transition purposes, or even pay two trillion. Let's have it run for two years on its own. I'm sure we wouldn't mind as a small sliver of our income um, get put toward that, keeping that system running at that point. Because at that point, all you're looking at is 4% of your income to fund it. Now, if you have health care any other way, any other way right now, you have to be aware that you're spending way more than 4% on that. And then you have to add in copays, deductibles. Oh, and the over-the-counter things that, you know, aren't covered. All of that stuff, right? Oh, yeah, dental appointments. Oh, don't forget glasses. See, that all gets covered under universal health care, Medicare for all, as many people call it. And again, it could be completely self-funded, not taking a penny from anybody but the billionaires. If we just slice off two of the six and a half trillion dollars they have in excess of being a billionaire each. That's not a radical statement. That's saying that we should take money that they have made off of our blood, sweat, and tears, that they've made by us grinding our bones to dust for their profit. We should take some of that money and put it back into society so that, hey, maybe we could be healthier longer. You know, it actually does make sense for the billionaires as well, because you know what? A healthy working populace works longer, works better, less sick days. You get the idea, right? Just these billionaires are so obsessed with greed. They can't see it. They can't see that this would be the way to go. They want more. Just to give you a quick idea, if you had a billion dollars, let me reverse that. Let's say you made $100,000 a year right? It would take 1,000 years making 100 grand to finally amass $1 billion, just one. And I don't know about you, but I think I've only got about 45 working years in my lifetime, roughly, you know, start at 18 and somewhere in my 60s. Hopefully that'd be nice, right? So that would mean it would be me, uh, let, me, let me just expand it to 50. So at 50 working years per lifetime, it would take 20 people with making $100,000 a year for their working years, or the 50 working years of their life to amass a billion dollars. And that's making good money, $100,000. I don't care where you live in America, is decent money in some places, it's downright well off. But you see, billionaires don't care that they have more money in just a single year than everybody else does. So at some point, we're going to have to demand that we get some of that money back so that you and I can actually have health care, real health care, universal health care. Now, as you're aware, I am on the radio here at WSUM. And so I don't tell you who to vote for. I don't tell you what you should do when it comes to your vote. Uh, I don't give you calls to action per se, but I can tell you this. It doesn't take much research into this 
to find out who's on the side of universal health care. It doesn't take too much. You can find uh, that there are several politicians out there who talk a good game, but then go against it once they're in office. You can find that there's um, groups out there that are solidly behind this and always have been. You can find out who you should back if you think that universal health care is important enough to take on the billionaires to get it. I think it is, but again, I leave your decision on that up to you. You're listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler, and I get people asking me fairly frequently, Aldous, wow, you know, you, you do see the world really clearly, even if they don't agree with me. They understand I see the world really clearly in the way I do. How do I do that? How do I um, get cut through the hordes of information that are thrown at us every day? And I say, well, it's simple. You close your eyes. Breathe deep. You need to find a center within yourself. Remember what matters to you. What's important to you? Keep that in mind. Hold it tight. Because once you've done that, you'll be able to discern what's important versus what's just fluff. And then you'll be ready to see the world for what it is. And once you've done that, once you're firmly centered to see the world for how it truly is, all you will have to do is simply open.